Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey there, spooksters. Welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my favorite gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. So today we are doing another patron select, and this one is requested by our patron, Amber. So a big thank you to Amber for, one, being a patron, and two, bringing the story to my heart, which then broke when I researched the story. But I'm glad I know the story now because I feel like their stories need to be told more. Speaking for both Tara and I, because she is not feeling the greatest today, so I will speak for her. We appreciate you (laughs) being a patron and supporting the show. So a huge thank you to you, Amber, from the bottom of my oversized black heart. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Amber. Today we're going to be discussing the story of the West Mesa murders, or the other name is it's known as the West Mesa Bone Collector. It's the name of the serial killer that is... Like, they don't know who the guy is, so they gave him a, a name. Okay. This happened a lot. Mm-hmm. So a short overview of this case is that between the years of 2001 and 2005, 11 women were buried by an unknown serial killer in Arroyo Bank in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in, like, kind of the suburb of West Mesa. Mm-hmm. That is, like, the biggest overview I can. The case wasn't brought to light until 2009, and they were between the ages of 15 and 32. So it was a very specific, like, age. It's kind of, like, post-pubescent, but not quite, like, mid-30s. Most of them were Hispanic, and most of them were involved either with drugs or in sex work. I think the easiest way for you guys to understand this is for me to go chronologically and talk about when they disappeared. And then obviously they were all discovered together. So we'll talk about all of that process as we go down. This story particularly hurts my heart because of the language that surrounds it and the attitude that was presented kind of in the mid 2000s towards people who lived in the drug and sex worker world. I think this is kind of before we, as humans, became culturally aware that we shouldn't talk down to people because of their economic situation or their background. And there was a term that kept popping up when I kept listening to videos and kept like reading and it just like broke my heart. I'd heard it before, but I didn't really know what it meant. So the term less dead, I want to address in case you go and start looking at our like at the sources page and you start watching the videos. I want to talk about it up front. I will not be using that terminology because fuck that noise. No one is ever considered less dead to me. It's ridiculous. I don't even understand what that's supposed to fucking mean. Like, how are you let like if you're dead, you're dead. Right. Actually, good point, because that's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> dead is dead. Like, you can't be less dead. Yeah. I mean, if you almost die, you're like less dead than dead. Yeah, but you never you say know? like, I less dead. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't almost less dead. No, you just say I almost died. <laughs> Right. Like, that's exactly it. But I did look it up because I went to the Google because mm-hmm. if you don't understand something, you sh- I highly recommend Googling yeah. it because the internet has answers. Yes. In the palm of your hand because everybody has a smartphone. <laughs> right. So according to the website sagepub.com, which kind of seems kind of like a place where weird terminology, not like weird terminology, but like terminology that's not normal was, 
It's defined as the less dead is a term coined to refer to the majority of serial murder victims who belong to a marginalized group of society. They lack prestige or power and generally come from a lower socioeconomic group. They are considered less dead because before their deaths, they were virtually never were according to the prevailing social attitudes. In other words, they were essentially ignored and devalued by their own communities or members of their neighborhoods and generally not missed when they were gone. Examples are prostitutes, homeless, vagrants, farm workers, poor, elderly women, and runaways. They're vulnerable in their locations they frequent and are easy to lure and dominate. So what you're telling me is everybody can picture what kind of fucking person uses this word. We'll just leave that at that. Jesus, fuck. Yeah, so I literally wrote in my notes, like, I'm here to say fuck that noise. And I am not above calling out creators who use that as, People like, their terminology. That? So if I come across your, co- like, if you're what? out there saying, if you listen to me, and you- I come across your content, and you refer to someone as less dead, I am going to leave you a bad review. Oh, uh, yeah. If people can leave us bad reviews for cursing, I will fucking leave you a bad review for using oh terminology that marginalizes and like they said, devalues people because there is no person in this world that it should be devalued no. regardless of their socioeconomic or their whatever their situation is. They're in that situation because of either choices or because of the fact that they have no other choice. They're still a fucking human. Yeah. Jesus. They're at the end of the day, they're a human. So like the fact that this was even like, I read like several articles that like I, once I saw them in there, I just immediately discredited them. Mm-hmm. They're in some videos and there's actually a video where this girl goes and she kind of talks about like why this it's a term used in the true crime community. No, it's no, 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 no. That's no. Mm-mm. Get the fuck out of here. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm really upset about this. Right. No, no. As am I. Like, where is this like subculture of the true crime community who says people are less dead? Like, that's so fucked up. It's probably the same people that think it's okay to wear that Bundy and Dahmer shirt. So fucking facts like i'm <laughs> sorry like that is the most ridiculous mm. thing like if that's how you think of other people like i have no room for you in my life Mm-mm. hell no because Goodbye. there have like i'm gonna be real like there have been moments in my time in my life where i have been poor like broke like mm-hmm. cleaning Same. other people's disgusting ass toilets for like money broke mm-hmm and there, you know, I haven't ever gotten into drugs, but that could have really easily been a coping method for the trauma that I had as a child mm-hmm. and uh, some as an adult. I could have gone to that. I could have become an alcoholic. I could have lost everything. I've just have been very fortunate that I had my parents who took care of me mm-hmm. if I ever fell down, you know, and some people don't have that situation. And if in an area where it's culturally acceptable, and I don't mean that like culturally acceptable, like, but what I'm saying is where it's heavily prevalent, it may make that choice easier. So I, I feel like that was kind of this area. Mm-hmm. But that is rant one for tonight. Is that <laughs> oh, if boy. you are using that term, you can see yourself out the door. Bye. I have no space in my life for people who like talk down Mm-mm. to others. And it, like, I just fucking can't. Like, I'm, I have to, right. Ugh. I'm trying not to rant. I'm sorry. But, no, go. it's just like this is the space. For it just it. makes me so mad that there's creators that would think that's OK. And I get mm-hmm. OK, here's the thing, because this is multifaceted and people are gonna be like, well, one, I didn't know it meant that. OK, cool. But why are you saying a phrase you don't know what it means? Like, don't we learn exactly. that as a kid? Don't say words you don't know what they mean because they can be bad. So right. <laughs> gross, gross. If you use it and you think it's OK, no, you're wrong. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. Mm-hmm. So fucking bye. Okay, I'm done now. I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I honestly, like, I don't know the origins of it, but if I could put an origin on it, I see this, like, 80s beat cop who, like, mm-hmm. you know, makes some snap judgment about a sex worker. And here's the thing. Sex workers are people. Yup. And a lot of them are not in it because they want to. Like, I mean, I don't, you know, some of them are trafficked into it. So yep. when you make those judgments. And like you said, sometimes people got to do what they got to do to survive. They got kids at home. They got to pay bills. They got to put food on the table. Like, mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate in my life that shit has never gotten that real for me. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, it's kind of like I know this is going to kind of sound weird, but it's like the cojones that takes to like step up and provide for your family mm-hmm. is 
that has to be the hardest decision of your life. Yeah. So when somebody talks down to them, I think you don't even know where the fuck they came from and the decision that they had to make to like get to where they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, if you use that language, you can kindly, what's my saying now? You can finally take a walk off the fuck off cliff. <laughs> I forgot about That's that. You <laughs> Down in the fuck-off ravine. Oh, no. Here comes another bad review because we've said fuck probably like 50 times. Honestly, like, quote (laughs) Gary V, if you can't stand my content because I curse, then I'm not the person for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. It's fine. That's why the little E's there. (laughs) Not to, like, to make this about me, but, like, I literally almost died last month. Like, legit, like, almost died. And I have just come to the conclusion now. Oh, I'm laughing. It's just because your face. Right. Because I'm like serious facing, but also like I also have my. I'm not laughing that she almost died. No, okay? no. Okay. Just I have no, to like, say that. Tara was like <laughs> two seconds from jumping on a plane to come see mm-hmm. me type shit. No. Mm-hmm. But like since then, I have literally been like, why would I waste time for people who don't like me authentically? And if you don't, like, Mm -hmm. if you think the word fuck distracts you from what we're talking about, you're not really listening to what we're talking about then. (laughs) So just say it. Right. Okay. All right. We're done now. (laughs) Done with my 19-minute rant (laughs) on our 13-minute recording. Okay. (laughs) Please know that there are 11 victims that they have found in this story, but there are many more women missing from this area. Yeah. So. On May 11th of 2013, Monica, and I'm going to slaughter this last name because there's so many syllables in it, Candelaria, she went missing. She was either 21 or 22 at the time she went missing. And she was last seen near like Central Avenue, which is kind of the area, kind of like where sex workers would be at. Her disappearance was investigated by the county sheriffs, but it would go cold. Her mother described her as having a beautiful laugh. Which, thank God, some people write obituaries for people because I found that in her obituary. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's such, I want to say that. And then her mother went on to say, Monica enjoyed laughing, joking, taking care of babies, and spending time with her family. And then the obituary goes on to say, she will be remembered as a loving daughter, mother, granddaughter, niece, cousin, and friend, and will be truly missed. Here's the interesting thing about Monica's story. Monica had some friends who were like, hey, police officers, our friend is missing and we think she's dead and we think she's buried out on the Mesa, which is what I guess what they call it. And the police like looked into it, but like nothing ever really happened. Mm. Deputies said that her high risk lifestyle and her (sighs) possible ties to gangs made it kind of hard for them to investigate like what truly happened. At the time, like back in 2003, mm-hmm. and she had had a record. So I think that was already a strike against her. She'd been arrested once for prostitution. So I think in the police's mind, they were like, oh, you know, oh, a prostitute went missing. Like, unfortunately, that is how some law enforcement take that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she could have also just left, wanted to start over. You know, and I know that that sounds like, oh, you're just like pandering. But I would hope that. If I was facing that situation, that's what it would be, is that they just left and started over somewhere else. Mm -hmm. A few months later, Dora Marquez would go missing. And that would be in October of 2003. And again, not to make it about me, but this whole time I'm reading this timeline, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like a senior in high school. And all I can think about is like where a party is on Friday night and where like where I'm going to college and the women in Albuquerque were facing like like scary times. Yeah. There are conflicting reports about her disappearance. The police say that she was last seen dropping off her child near Lead and University. I think it was like where the child went to school. But she was also reported last seen walking alone in a neighborhood, like kind of farther away from Mesa. So there's these two conflicting reports where she was last seen. She was also said to love jewelry and fashionable clothing and had a huge personality which I think was just beautiful. She always wanted, it said that she always wanted to get her hair done and her nails done and she wanted to look her best and that she was truly gorgeous and that someone said she was like the type of person who even if she like threw her hair up, like, oh, a messy bun, she just looked gorgeous, Mm -hmm. you know? Unlike other women who was discovered on the Mesa, she didn't have a record, but the police believe she was like engaged in the lifestyle. But there was no proof to back that up. 
So we're going to flash forward to the early parts of 2004, and we're talking February, March. Uh, Victoria Chavez, age 26, would go missing. She was last seen, like I said, in 2004, and her mother would report her missing in March of 2005. Yeah, you heard that right. Tara's like process. <laughs> A year? I'm I'm sorry, guy. Yeah, I, I've been <laughs> sick in bed sorry. all damn day. A year. Yeah, a whole year. This is just, and her mother cited that the reason it took her a whole year is that she knew she was involved in drugs and prostitution. So she just assumed that she was off doing those things. For a year? Did she have a history of leaving for months at a time? And like, I'm not being like, fuck no, there's no way I'd let even months go by. But I'm just like. She did. She also had five like convictions. Mm-hmm. with prostitution so there's a possibility her mom just thought she was in jail but i would there's ways Jesus. to do that like most counties have like a way you, you can look up it. their county jail and see yeah. if they're there oh man i like to play that very fun game sometimes with the county i grew up in because sometimes the mugshots you get are hilarious mm-hmm In February of 2014, Veronica Romero went missing. She was reported missing on Valentine's Day by her family. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much about her. I looked at her obituary and it was literally just like who she survived and then who survived her, if that makes sense. And so it was like nothing personal about her. And I mean, it was like they were pulling like her cousin's like husband like that's they were naming like all of the people so it wasn't like someone sat down and that just broke my heart because it made me even sadder and i like googled her and i just kept finding people who were like had the other people with the name who had like twitters and things like that so it made me sad for veronica because i just if you are in that area and you knew her or related to someone who knew her or you're related to her and you've listened to this please let us know more mm-hmm. info about her we'd love to be able to share her story Yeah. Because her life matters. So on April 3rd, which is my parents' wedding anniversary, and Hmm. just I love when I I love and hate when like dates pop up and I'm like, oh, I have a reason to remember that date. Mm -hmm. So on April 3rd, 2004, Jamie Barella, age 15, went to the park near San Mateo in Gibson Southeast with her cousin Evelyn Salazar, and she was never seen again. Salazar, who I'll talk about next, was also a victim found at the West Mesa. Unlike a lot of the others, she was 15, so she didn't have any history of sex work or drug arrest. So she didn't really have a criminal record. Unfortunately, she's also like her family didn't put a lot about her out there, and it might be her age. I thought about like she's 15, maybe the family wants to hold back a bit. Also, I had this moment that I realized that these girls, like that girl was only three years younger than me. And that Mm. also kind of, like, made me, like, have weebies a little bit. Yeah. Like I mentioned, her cousin, Evelyn, was with her when she disappeared. And she was also a victim. It was said that she liked camping in the outdoors and was a good cook and taught her daughter how to roller skate. I was like, that's beautiful. They believe, investigators is the they, they believe that sometime in May of 2004, Solania Edwards was last seen in a high prostitution area on the East Colfax Avenue in Aurora, Colorado. She was 15 and a runaway, and where she ran away from was a foster home, which I literally wrote in my notes, try not to foster care rant, but I have to. I There are so many people out there who are great foster homes. I just have a really hard time when it's like kids run away and they get into bad situation because they had bad foster homes. Yeah. It makes me sad. So the differences between her and all the other victims is most of the other victims were of Hispanic origin and she was of like African-American or like that was kind of her ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And she was the only victim who was from out of state. And they're not sure whether or not like she was picked up in another state or if she had traveled to like New Mexico to Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. So we are unsure. And I had thought about, like, what if this was, like, a convenient dump for someone? But it would be really weird if somebody stumbled upon an, a serial killer's dumping ground and dumped their body. Like, that would be... Mm-hmm. That's very highly unlikely. Right. In June of 2004, Virginia Cloven, age 24, called her dad to tell her that she was moving in with her new boyfriend. Her new boyfriend that she had just met, who had just gotten out of prison, and she said she was probably going to marry. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
After that, her dad had n- did not hear from her again. Now, I want to point out that her dad and her like lived in separate areas. So when he waited four months, I think it was like maybe he he knew she had fallen on hard times. So maybe she didn't have a phone. Maybe she didn't have a way to contact him. She knew he or he knew she was into drugs. So I think he waited the four months to try to like find her. Mm. An article I read said that he and his wife tried really hard to find her. She was said to be funny and loved doing her makeup and actually was a favorite at school. Like her dad said in an interview that all the teachers wanted to adopt her and take her home because they loved her so much. So she had like this really big, fun personality. Mm -hmm. But sadly, Virginia's family was not unfamiliar to the loss of a child. When she was in high school, her brother was shot and killed. The homicide was ruled self-defense. So I don't know what that means, but that's what it is. That's what I know. So this kind of like doubly makes it sad because they have lost two children. She had first moved to the area and lived with her grandfather in Albuquerque, which, by the way, Albuquerque is quite a bitch of a word to spell. Just saying. Because the (laughs) Q-U-E-Q-U-E like threw me. I was like, what? I've never had to spell Mm -hmm. that before. So she moved in with her grandfather. And then shortly after, she moved in with a... A boyfriend, not the boyfriend that she said she was going to marry. But that boyfriend, sadly, was in a car accident and went into a coma. And at that point, she lost the house she was living in and was living on the streets. And she turned to sex work to help provide for herself. Then she met her new boyfriend and was moving in with him, but then wasn't heard from again. So I just really feel doubly sad for her family because they lost both children. I don't know if she had yeah. any other siblings, but that's that's got to be hard. Like, I can't even imagine losing one child, but to lose two children. Right. Oh, my God. In July of 2004, Cinnamon Elks, age 32, and she would be our oldest victim, was last seen when she, this is the weird one, guys. She was arrested and taken to the Metropolitan Detention Center. That's when she was last seen. Mm, scream sketchy. I need somebody from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I need someone from APD, Albuquerque Police Department, to please contact me and let me know that they actually have a report of releasing her because otherwise it sounds like she was abducted in the detention center. Sketch as fuck. Right? Right. Hmm. Her mom reported her missing within a month when Cinnamon didn't call her to wish her a happy birthday. So I think her mom kind of knew where she was or thought she was. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she didn't call to wish her mom a happy birthday. I think that kind of like, you know, it sounds like that was pretty consistent for her. It was said that she knew three of the other victims. Two I haven't mentioned yet, which is Michelle Valdez and Julie Nito, who I will talk about in a second, and Veronica Chavez, who we mentioned earlier. Now, Julie, who's age 24, went missing in August of 2004, and she was last seen in her grandfather's house. As a child, it was said that Julie was really small for her age, and she was so small that her mom actually had to, like, mend her clothes to, like, fit, like, to make alterations Mm -hmm. because she was so tiny. So I was like, oh, that's adorable. She said that Eleanor, her mom, said that Julie started using drugs when she was around 19, and they tried to get her treatment and tried to get her help, but it was to no avail. Two years after, this is the, the other sad, this is the other sad thing. Two years after Julie went missing, her sister Valerie was found dead in a motel near Central Avenue after overdosing. So Eleanor is raising both Julie and Valerie's sons, which Aww. just broke my heart even more. Yeah. Julie had four convictions on her record. So the police knew who she was, which in some cases I think is good because if you're known by the police and then suddenly you're not around, the police will notice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, a little bit. Hey. And then our final victim that we will talk about tonight on September 24th, 2004, Michelle Valdez, age 22, was last seen by her family. Her mom knew something was wrong again when she didn't call her to wish her a happy birthday, which I think of like, I think this happened a lot. I, f- I find this happening a lot in cases where parents of like murdered victims, they say like, I knew something was wrong because it was my birthday and she didn't call me and she always calls me or always comes to see me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, goodness, I guess. She wasn't reported missing until 2005, which is 
the next year, but it was in February. She went missing in September. When Michelle went missing, she was four months pregnant. Oh. Mm-hmm. The last time she saw her father, Dan, she had asked, he had asked her not to stay away for so long. He said that she walked up, put her arms around me and hugged me. She said, no, dad, hug me hard and tight. It was like she seemed to know something was about to happen. I was like, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. Her family couldn't remember exactly when she started using drugs, but she they said she started disappearing for months or for days and then weeks at a time and then eventually months at a time. So it kind of made sense why they didn't report her missing right away because she had a tendency to stay away for a long period of time. When mm-hmm. Michelle was young, she either wanted to be a singer when she grew up or a lawyer like her aunt, Aww. which I thought was really sweet. Mm-hmm. So flash forward to August of 2005, Albuquerque police detective Ida Lopez noticed that several women who had ties with drugs and prostitution had just vanished from Albuquerque. Like they weren't there anymore, which like I said, I mentioned earlier, having previous convictions and being maybe a frequent flyer in that system makes you like... I don't know. I kind of related to when I was in the hospital, there was a guy that was in line ahead of me and he was a frequent flyer for like minor things. Mm-hmm. Like he would call 911 and have them take him to the hospital for like something that wasn't an emergency. I kind of equate it to that. Like if you're known by the system and they see your face and then they're out patrolling and they don't see your face, there's going to be a clicking moment where they're like, wait a second, I haven't seen this person in a while. I'm going to go investigate. Where did this person go? Mm-hmm. You know, and they're probably hoping that, you know, they moved on in life, like, you know, maybe got out of the situation or whatnot. Right. But Detective Lopez was on a mission and she created a list of missing women in the area. And thank God for her collecting names because she collected a total of 16, which is a lot of women yeah. to go missing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot of women to go missing in a short period of time. So thank God for her. And this list kind of lived with the police department for years. And I think they probably added to it or, you know, when someone showed up, they took things away. You know, that I'm sure that happened, but... Yeah. So now we're going to flash forward four years onto February 2nd of 2009. Christine Ross was walking her dog, Ruka, in a suburb, like, housing development that hadn't really been developed. It was kind of like... (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but it's like when I was a kid, there was a prune orchard on my street. And then they're like, we're going to build a housing development here. So they ripped it out and then they basically flattened everything and plotted it out and then built a Mm cul-de-sac and then it went under so it was just land so i can totally understand having this like weird flat land but not quite flat because of over the years like roots and things came back from the trees and and that kind of stuff so i could imagine how that would be really good to like walk a dog in because they can find sticks and things like that and play Mm -hmm. So this was an undeveloped area, and it was within the city limits of Albuquerque, but it was called the West Mesa. When Christina and her dog were enjoying their walk, they came upon something that looked like a bone. So they investigated a little further, and they realized it was a human femur. And she did the right thing because immediately she contacted the police. Oh, good. She didn't wait. She called the police. She was like, hey, I found a human bone in the mesa and i have a feeling that it was probably rumored out there that there were bodies buried so i don't think the police were that shocked Mm -hmm. i just don't think they had a warrant to go like dig up the mesa because it was owned by a developing company (laughs) as they investigated the area where the bodies were buried authorities ended up discovering the bodies of 11 women and one unborn child Mm. which we talked about so basically after A flooding that happened in the area, the developer, who, by the way, Tara, the developer was KB Home. Oh, God. (laughs) I was like, oh, God. I used to work for them. They're they're actually a really great company. Like, I don't want people to, like, be like, oh, shit. Like, they're horrible. No, they're actually a very good company. And they they actually are Mm -hmm. great. I don't mean to sound like I drank that Kool-Aid, but I definitely drank that Kool-Aid for a while. (laughs) So the developer put up a retaining wall so that the stormwaters wouldn't, like, affect the neighbors nearby, which I thought was nice. But this ultimately, I think, led to water gathering, which then led to things floating to the surface. Like, the soil got disturbed, and so ended up exposing bones on the surface. When they unearthed the skeletons, they did it. It was a mass burial site of about 100 acres. Jeez. So it was... Oh, my God. It was big. Right. 
And I think they I think they probably dug a hundred acres. I don't know if they found remains. Yeah, I get what you're saying. They used heavy equipment to move masses of piles of dirt and then they hand sifted through the dirt to search for evidence. And this took them like two and a half months to do. Like it took a long time. Shit. And they worked like all day, like all the time. Mm-hmm. Once the remains were located, it took them over a year to identify all of them. Jamie mm-hmm. was, in fact, the last one to be identified. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were using the list that Detective Lopez had created because that was a good place for them to start because they could do things like if they had DNA on file, they could run it against the DNA they found. Mm-hmm. So they started doing that with, like, taking the list and matching it forensically to who who it was. One of the things that the detectives did is they start, they went back and looked at, like, Google. I think it's Google Images. They just said satellite footage. I'm like, that has to be Google. <laughs> <laughs> so they looked between the times of 2003 and 2005, and the police could see where it would show tire marks, like, driving up to where, like, the burial sites were. And they could see like patches of disturbed soil in the area. And they Mm. could see that between 2003 and 2005 with the last one being in 2005. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of reasons why they may have stopped in 2005. One of them was in 2006. Like I mentioned, KB Home was the home builder. They started actually doing work out there. They basically were making a subdivision. Yeah. So they had gone down and like patted down the earth and everything like that. And sometimes like the the KB home I worked for, like they would get a plot of land. And once they got the green light to go, I mean, they could put houses up in like less than six months. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it takes a lot longer depending on like getting permits and stuff like that. So the other thing is, is they may have started building in one other area and they were like doing land development part of it. And then the housing bubble happened in 2008. So development stopped. And this happened like all over the country. So it just basically stopped. They'd stopped building. So I have a feeling like the housing development came really close to where it was. But if you were the killer, you'd be like, well, I'm not going back there. Because if I go back there, people will notice that (laughs) I don't belong on this construction site. And they may also notice that I have a body. Yeah. It was said that after the dig was over, that both the city of Albuquerque and KB Home, which was, like I said, was the developer, that they were going to take part of that plot of land and create like a commemorative park for the the victims. But I kind of looked into it and I don't know if it happened. The last thing I saw was like from a couple years ago and it was the city and KB Home. Like I think the city and KB Home were like squabbling about how they wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. I think the city had one idea and they had another idea. But if I know anything, you could just build a park in the middle of your subdivision. It can happen as long as you got space. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not like a recess area where the water has to drain. Things I have useless in my brain now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just thinking like, oh, I'm thinking of like this one subdivision we built. Like, oh, yeah, there was this beautiful like plot of land that we couldn't use because the way that the water would run down it would pull at the back so either sell a house to someone with a big pond every time it rained but you couldn't build a park there because (laughs) there there would be a pond in the middle of your park it's like not a good pond (laughs) kids don't play in that area (laughs) here's a floaty (laughs) so it was just nothing i was like you could have put a picnic a couple picnic tables something yeah That's the HOA's job, not ours. (laughs) Anyways. Moving on. Okay. On December 9th of 2000, Albuquerque police released six photos of a series of seven, but they released six of them of other unidentified women. And then the police didn't say how they got these photos. And some of the women appeared to be unconscious. They may have had some physical characteristics that were similar to the ones of the original victims, but Mm -hmm. they were looking for people to come forward and say like, oh, I know who that person is. And what they were really hoping for is that people would see these photos and go, oh, that's so-and-so. She lives down the street from me and she's still alive. Like that's, and I actually had that a couple of times. Two of the women that they released the photos of, Mm -hmm. they found out that they were alive and they actually came forward to like help. So that was good. Yeah. But there was the seventh photo that was released the following day. Actually, the family saw and the the woman had died of natural causes Mm -hmm. several years before. Mm -hmm. So they were able to be like, no, she's not one of your victims. Oh, okay. 
On the December 13th it's, is when those two women came forward, which I think was great. Now we're going to flash forward to 2018. So there were more bones found near the site of the burials. But I want to say this, they were later determined to be ancient and not connected to the murders. Just happened to be buried old-fashioned style mm. before we had mm-hmm. coffins and things like that. Yeah. If anyone's like they found more bodies, they're not they're not bodies related to this particular murder. So you're probably wondering about suspects, right? Because like, mm-hmm. yeah. So there were a few. Like I said, they had donned the name of the West Mesa Bone Collector, which I think is a crazy name <laughs> a for bit. a serial killer. A little bit. I mean, I totally, you guys know I love criminal minds, and I totally believe in that logic where if you name them, it gives them more power. Yeah. Yeah. As of now, I have to say that there are no official suspects mm, because they have not, like, you know, been like this person. And a couple, there's a couple reasons why. But they did offer in 2010 up to $100,000. I think it's kind of gone down now. I think it's down to fifty. They, over time, had several men that they thought, oh, they kind of fit the bill. One was by the name of Fred Reynolds. He was a, lack of a better word, pimp. Mm-hmm. And he actually knew one, if not more, of the women oh, who disappeared. Okay. But he died of natural causes in 2009. Of course. So it's like they can't even ask it. Like yeah. in January of 2009. Uh, so it wasn't even like they could have been like, hey, come in for an interview, interview him, and then he died. Right. <laughs> like it was before that. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about a guy who I think could potentially be this dude. Okay. His name is Lorenzo Montoya, which is, yeah, such a name. He lived less than three miles from the burial site. In 2006, there was an altercation in his trailer. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Mm. Basically, he strangled a a woman. Some say teenager, some say woman. And then her boyfriend, who was waiting outside for her, came in and shot him. Oh, fuck. And killed him. Oh, fuck. Right. So basically, when he was killed, the obviously the victims of the West Mesa had not been discovered. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know to kind of maybe he could be potentially. But police chief Ray Schultz says at the time the police had been looking at him in connections to sex workers who had vanished because they were like, he frequents this area, but... Sometimes they don't come back. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So he has been named a possible suspect. So basically, there's another guy that I think could possibly be it, or these two may have worked in tandem, or, you know, Mm -hmm. they just may have known of each other and knew where to dump, for lack of a better statement. But basically, the East Central Corridor, which is kind of, if you remember when we talked about the Green River Killer, there's like that specific like street. This is kind of what was known in Albuquerque. As kind of that area. So he was known to cruise that area and he was known to be violent. Oh, sure. Just also that, you know, when they did the autopsies on the victims, they mm-hmm. couldn't actually find cause of death. Sure. Because there was like, you know, lack of. Right. Yeah. Like some evidence. Mm-hmm. Our boy Montoya, like he was a frequent flyer at the prison or the, the jail too. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Frequent flyer. He was arrested in 1998 because he solicited to an undercover detective. Oops. He offered her $40. And when she took him back <laughs> to the motel room nearby, he was arrested. What are you going to get for $40? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to talk about his cheap ass. We're going to definitely make comments about that. Uh, but this did not make him go, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, solicit people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should just give them my money and walk away and not solicit them. Just here you go. <laughs> so basically, it was in 1999, and the police were kind of like following him because obviously he has, I think they saw him on, on Central Avenue mm-hmm. and they were like, hmm, I don't know what you're about to do, so I'm just going to follow you. <laughs> Type thing. So they picked him up and they flew or they followed him and they followed him out to this like little like it was like a dark road that there was like an airport nearby Mm -hmm. type thing. And the police caught him actually trying to rape and strangle a girl. Oh, God. So thank God they did follow him. Yeah. Like, thank God. Apparently, he had never planned on paying her because when they took him into custody and they looked at the money he had on him, he had two dollars. Jesus. Oh, boy. Right? $2. Mm-hmm. But he was arrested, mm-hmm. and later the charges were dropped. Mm. Don't know why, but they just were dismissed. Of course they were. About four years later, he literally got watched again, pick up a sex worker, and they arrested him. And the woman told him that they he offered her $15. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. 
Montoya is not rolling in the deep. If you if you get my drift, <laughs> he's very much like, "Hey, here's this money." I would be like, "Cool." I'd be like, "Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. You got a hand. Bye." <laughs> right. Let me give you this bottle of lotion. <laughs> Have a nice life. Right. Also, he has a domestic violence streak. Aww. According to his girlfriend, she took out like a restraining order and she filed a domestic violence report. Mm-hmm. In the report, she said that he tried to kill me and bury me in lime. Oh, fuck. What? Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So that kind of was like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, maybe this guy's bad news. Maybe, yeah. Uh- So we're going to go a little deeper Mm -hmm. into the December 2006 when our boy Montoya met his end. Mm. In December of 2006, he, quote unquote, invited an escort over to his trailer where he killed her. Yeah, he strangled her. She was bound to the ankles, knees, and waist with duct tape Mm. and cord, said the detective. (sighs) Basically, when her boyfriend, I think, was kind of... Knew she was into sex work mm-hmm. and was waiting in the car for her. And when it had been past the allotted time mm-hmm. that she said, like, I'll be in there 15 minutes. Like, it's only 15 minutes or whatever. When it became past that, he went in. Yeah. And Aww. he saw her. And oh, no. he then shot Montoya. Bye. Right. <laughs> Which I was, like, justified. Mm-hmm. When the investigators went into his trailer to, like, they found the duct tape next to the bed. They also found hardcore pornography and homemade sex tapes. Oh, God. Now, mm -hmm. one of the recordings of the sex was showing him having sex with a woman and the tape goes black, (gasps) which gets very scary. And then the following scenes... The camera focuses on the wall, but the camera didn't capture what had happened. But the audio captures the sound like the tape is being pulled from the roll Mm -hmm. or being pulled from from a roll like duct tape. Mm -hmm. And at least one trash bag is opened and there was minutes of rustling noises. The police sent the audio to the FBI and other crime lands to Hans, but they haven't been able to determine what exactly he was doing. They have a pretty good idea, but they can't like definitively be like, that was duct tape. And a bat and a trash bag, and he's putting a body into it. Like, he could have been loading laundry, for all we know. I mean, I hope so. I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt it, but I hope so. Yeah. So the two years after his death, that's, like, you know, a little over two years is when they found the West Mesa victims. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh, my gosh, this guy. He has to be part of it. And so they went as yeah. far as to, like, their trying to see like in 2016 they reached out the police spokesperson tanner trexer they showed two women who were in the tapes who they believe were escorts and they're just saying like please if you know them or if you are them let us know who you are and let us know you're alive yeah so if you have not identified if you need to go check that out if that could possibly be you if you hear that name and you're like oh my god please Mm -hmm. please identify yourself so that they can be like okay yeah. There was one other guy that they like for a minute thought was his name was Ron Irwin. He was connected to the case because he went to the state fair and he supposedly took thousands of pictures and that some of the pictures had some of the people in them. But mm. if he's taking thousands of pictures at a state fair, like if you just walk around clicking, I'm sure he would yeah, capture there was probably happen. more people that weren't involved. Right. He was cleared pretty quickly of being a suspect. Mm-hmm. Do you know the name Scott Lee Campbell or Kimball? Mm-mm. You might remember a little bit because he's a serial killer from Colorado who they let out to be an informant because he was an informant. Oh, good. And then he killed more people. And so they were like. Shocker. Oops. Right? (laughs) Fucking dumbasses. He was said to possibly be a suspect because of the connection between like Colorado and one of the victims who was last seen in Colorado. Mm-hmm. But there's no proof that he was in New Mexico ever. Gotcha. But there, I mean, it's like you can't rule him in, can't rule him out. It's like a mm-hmm. weird situation. Yeah. Now, our next suspect was brought to the attention of the investigators almost immediately. Like we're talking within like seven days of the remains being found. That's pretty damn fast. Whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The police were contacted by an April Gillen. And she said that she thought someone she knew was involved, her (gasps) ex-husband. She calls and is like, hey, 
I really think this is my ex-husband. His name is Joseph Blay. He seems very suspect. However, the police had already started thinking about him because he was on their shit list. The police knew him because there had been many allegations that had surfaced over the years. In fact, 130 times, at least, between 1990 and 2009, had the police had encounters with him, including many of them in the East Central Corridor, which is where we've established where these young women worked. And I was like, that's a lot of times to be like bumping into the police 130 times. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that's that's a lot, kind (laughs) of. Right? Like, oh, geez. (laughs) In like a 19-year span to be like, hey. Mm, Yeah. Right? It was reported six years before the West Mesa victims went missing. So in the 90s, a woman had been walking on Central Avenue. And Joseph was like, hey, come over here. And when she walked over to his car, he exposed himself. So super classy. Gross. Right? In the weeks after the victims were found, there were just... Okay, so the detectives have this program with the Albuquerque Police Department. It's called Repeat Offender Project. And basically, if you're a repeat offender, they follow your ass. Because they're like, we Mm -hmm. could remove you and put you on in the prison system. Get you off of our street. So while they were doing that, several times, at least two times that they know of, he basically drove down Central Avenue and didn't pick anyone up. I think he knew he was being followed, but he definitely was watching them. Mm, He's a little creeper. He's super creepy. Eight months after the West Mesa investigation began, detectives searched his home and they found a collection of women's jewelry and a collection of women's underwear. Oh. Right. His current wife, Cheryl, told the police that he enjoyed wearing women's underwear when they were having sex. That's why he had those underwear. It's because he liked wearing them when they were having sex. I mean, if that's true, do whatever makes you happy. But I feel Mm -hmm. probably not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She said that on occasion, she would find jewelry that didn't belong to her or her daughter in the home, which I think is like highly suspect. Like, guys... And she said her daughter has found women's underwear hidden in their shed. So this isn't just like, I like to have a pair. Like, I think of this, like, there's this movie called, it's called Caffeine. It's really, it's like a kind of a darkish comedy. And one of Mm -hmm. the couples, it's like all happening in this cafe. And one of this couple, like, he admits that he likes to wear women's underwear. When he kind of gets outed, his friend tells him, tells Mm -hmm. his fiance that he likes to wear her underwear when she leaves their house. She's like, we're just going to get you your own pair. It's fine. (laughs) I was like, that's healthy. That's actually very healthy. Like, "Mm, cool. This is your kink. You got it. But this seems a little like I hide my stuff. Like, you know, like Ed Kemper, like hide the shoes. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And many of the family members of the victims say that when the remains were recovered, like, and they got their belongings, that there were no jewelry. So that was like, there was jewelry missing. Mm. So... In 2014, however, there would be a break in another case that he was suspected in a different thing. He was actually dubbed the mid-school rapist because in the 80s, he would break into homes of 13 to 15-year-old girls near a middle school. Mm, No. Yeah. Ew, bad person. Mm -hmm. He's a very bad person. And this was discovered through DNA, of course. And then there was another case that kind of broke in 2015, where in 1985, they had found a woman who had, she was found dead on Central Avenue. And they found his DNA in the waistband of her, of like her clothing. Oh, yeah. So obviously he had either just been with her before she was murdered or he had murdered her. You know, and we all know that in 1985, they didn't have the technology to do the blood testing, that DNA testing that we have now. They could probably have gotten blood mm-hmm. type, but wouldn't have been able to narrow it down to get a conviction. Right. So with that, plus the rape cases that he was involved in, he was sentenced to 36 years in June of 2015. He was 58 at the time. So he will be quite old. Right. I know. The 90-year-old guy got out and killed someone. We know this, but, like, still. (laughs) Like, he's still quite old. I don't think he will get out that well. They actually interviewed his cellmates, like, from when he was. Hmm. And he admitted to knowing some of the Mesa victims and said that he had paid them for sex acts. Hmm. Gotcha. Right. So that there's a link there. Hmm. 
basically he he looks to be the strongest one. However, we have to talk about the fact that if Joseph is the killer, what made him stop in 2005, 2006? And if it is the right. development thing, is there another burial site out there somewhere else where there's women who have gone missing that we don't know about? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was something even the news was saying in back in 2009, 2010, like, could this be a bigger thing than just this one isolated area in New Mexico? I mean, New Mexico is covered in desert. Right. There's plenty of space. Right. So we may never know how many victims because one of the things that we know, like when we study serial killers, is that they don't, and I hate to say the successful ones who evade the police for a long time. Yeah. Move around. Look at Ted Bundy. Like when Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy realized that he was getting kind of the heat on him in Washington, he moved to Utah Mm -hmm. and then he moved to Colorado. I mean, I don't think he was successful because he was an idiot and just didn't know how to, like, drive his car without getting caught. Like, they always, like, the Mm -hmm. number one thing lawyers tell you to do is don't commit a crime when you're committing a crime. Yeah. So, like, don't speed if you're Mm -hmm. dealing drugs. Yeah. That type of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in Ted's case, like, turn your lights on when you're driving down the street at night. But... There's a possibility that this is just one particular area. Also, this person could be like a temp, like could have lived there temporarily. Like they could have lived in the area. They could have lived there for a few years and then moved on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the potential for who this person is, is quite large. And I do not envy the Albuquerque Police Departments because this is a cold case that's on their books. Yeah. And the thing is, there wasn't DNA found on any of the victims. There wasn't any of that. And potentially two of their suspects are already dead. Right. So if it turns out to be Montoya or Reynolds, what do you do? I mean, you could try them, like, by proxy, but what does that really do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, kind of like, I mean, my theory is that it's either Joe or Montoya. I agree. It just seems like, the especially with Joe, like, the escalation of it, I mean... Mm -hmm. The only thing is that, like, his type, I mean, his he had as a type, which is sex workers. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, before he probably had access to those minors. So that's probably why he, he chose that. But that escalated. Like, we saw in, like, the Golden State Killer, how he went from, like, robbing to just sexual assault and rape to when he was in Southern California to actual murder. So who knows? I really hope that they get a win on this, that they find someone, not just because I would like to know who did it and have them be held accountable, but for those 11 women who aren't with us today, right? whose families, mm-hmm. you know, like I know at the beginning we talked about like how society puts those type of like workers down, but like there's 11 families, well, 10 families, because like they were, you know what I'm saying? Like they were cousins, mm-hmm. two of them. But there are families out there who are grieving the loss of a person in their life. Yeah. And if you're reading, like, I really hate that they have to have their job put in there. But it's an important factor because of the type of suspect and their victim pool. Like, they were really going there. And I just, I hate these cases. I know. Because they're so brutal and it's just taking a life. Like, we've been doing this for almost three years and I still can't understand and I'm glad I don't understand how someone could take a life. <laughs> I'd be a little like worried. That. <laughs> right. You're like, I get it now. <laughs> You're like, no. Sanctity of life, people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amber, for being a patron and for bringing this case to my attention. I really, I know it's such a horrible case, but I'm glad it's on my radar because now, like, I will set Google alerts. I will be watching out for them. Absolutely. And I hope, I really hope Albuquerque PD gets a win. Yeah. That somebody comes forward, that there are answers. Mm-hmm. With that, we're going to go ahead and sign off for today. And we will see you back for another episode next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.